Our first poem today is by a Danish poet, Sven Holm, and it's an attempt to explore that that country's colonial history in Greenland. Greenland's history, or the history of the Danes on Greenland. What were we doing up there, we Danish people, 3,000 miles away, in the name of Hans Egede and Jacob Severin? What was the point of those crosses and all that expense? What did we have in mind when we collected the country's people in settlements and then scattered them, and collected them in colonies and then scattered them and collected them in towns? What was this magnificent plan we had conceived with Christ and the crown, we who crucify our Savior and invest our king with a coin on his head? For more than 200 years, they listened to us like far too patient children throughout a far too long, prolonged childhood. When their wonderment came to an end, our own started a grim wonderment that an entire people should show so little gratitude. Instead of visions, we had come with principles. Instead of feelings, with our national church. And we excused ourselves by saying it was no different at home. As if the country's people should make do with just as little as we allow ourselves. Then the country's people began to speak. Over the word Greenland, they wrote their own name, Kalatlit Nunat, that means the people's land. Over Egedizminde, they wrote Asiat, that means the spiders. Over Jacob's Haven, they wrote Eluslilat, that means the ice mountains. And thus it was they buried Hans Egede and Jacob Severin. They no longer called themselves Greenlanders or Eskimos, but Inuit. That means people. And thus they began to reconquer themselves with words. Beneath the rock of silence lies a multitude of names. And the right to these names is owned by those who live in the language. The powwow at the end of the world. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after an Indian woman puts her shoulder to the Grand Coulee Dam and topples it. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after the floodwaters burst each successive dam downriver from the Grand Coulee. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after the floodwaters find their way to the mouth of the Columbia River as it enters the Pacific and causes all of it to rise. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after the first drop of flood water is swallowed by that salmon waiting in the Pacific. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after that salmon swims upstream through the mouth of the Columbia 
and then past the flooded cities, broken dams, and abandoned reactors of Hanford. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, after that salmon swims through the mouth of the Spokane River as it meets the Columbia, then upstream until it arrives in the shallows of a secret bay on the reservation where I wait alone. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall. After that salmon leaps into the night air above the water, throws a lightning bolt at the brush near my feet, and starts the fire, which will lead all the lost Indians home. I am told by many of you that I must forgive. And so I shall, after we Indians have gathered around the fire with that salmon, who has three stories it must tell before sunrise. One story will teach us how to pray. Another story will make us laugh for hours. This third story will give us reason to dance. I am told by many of you that I must forgive, and so I shall, when I am dancing with my tribe during the powwow at the end of the world. It's always hard to know where to begin the story. And our story today is about the northern bands of the Ute tribe. Does the story begin thousands of years ago when people first made their homes in the mountains and valleys and plains of what is now Utah and Colorado? Does it begin as they identified or developed an identity as Utes and a connection to that land? Does it begin in the 1630s with the first interaction with Europeans, Spanish explorers, who introduced horses to the Utes? Horses changed the Utes' ways of travel and hunting and their understanding of wealth. Or does it begin in the 1860s when the American Unitarian Association, our religious forebearers, entered the scene? It could begin somewhere else entirely. And for our purposes today, I'm starting the story in the 1860s, aware that I'm making the Unitarians play a role, a central role, in a way they wouldn't if I started the story somewhere else, aware that the sources that I have to tell this story, the written tradition of history, largely tells only the perspective of white people. And as I tell this story, I invite you to remember that so much is left out and has been lost. And we have to hear the gaps as well as the words. In the late 1860s, the attention of our country turned from the Civil War and Reconstruction toward the West. Settlement was expanding as farmers and miners and other people settled with greater density. And there was a furious debate about what the U.S. government should do about the Native Americans, the people who are already on that land. Everyone who was part of that debate in a meaningful way believed in manifest destiny, the virtue of westward expansion, the belief that the whole North American continent 
was promised to people of European descent by God, that the West should be transformed into farmland. The debate was about how to make that vision a reality and what should be done with the people who lived there who did not share that vision. It was a debate between annihilation and assimilation. One side of the fight believed that the native people should be killed. Their presence was incompatible with westward expansion, and so they did not deserve to continue living. They could never adapt to a new way of life. And the other relatively progressive position was that native people could be taught white ways of farming and family structure and religion, and within a few generations, assimilate into white culture. Many of the strongest advocates of this position had been deeply involved in the abolitionist movement, the names we might remember, like William Lloyd Garrison and Harriet Beecher Stowe. At that time in the West, most tribes had signed some sort of treaty with the U.S. government and were living on reservations, land that was set aside just for them. In exchange for giving up land and hunting rights and their way of life, most tribes were promised regular food, clothing, money, and other supplies. These treaty obligations were overseen by Indian agents, federal employees who dispersed the supplies and were expected to teach natives white ways, including agriculture and Christianity. They were also tasked with resolving the conflicts that emerged between the tribes and the white people who inevitably encroached on the land the tribes had been promised. And at this time, in the 1860s, Indian agents were notoriously corrupt. They were regularly pocketing the money due to the people they were supposed to serve. They sold off supplies meant for native people. And for the progressives, this was the problem. The reason that tribal people weren't assimilating to white culture is that the examples they had were awful. The examples they had were corrupt and immoral. If only the Indian agents had moral upstanding or moral and upstanding humans, this would all be different. And so the Quakers led this charge and petitioned President Grant to allow churches to nominate the Indian agents. The thinking was that churches would select agents who were moral men, usually clergy, who would be good examples for the tribal people, who would make assimilation happen more quickly. So Grant took the Quaker suggestion, and this was called the peace policy, and it began in 1868. The tribes of the West were then divvied up among the Protestant denominations. And at that time, the American Unitarian Association, one of our predecessor denominations, was largely within the Protestant fold. And so they were assigned the two northern agency outposts of the Ute tribe, whose traditional land spans most of what is now Colorado and Utah, along with parts of Mexico, or parts of New Mexico, Arizona, and Wyoming. And by the time the Unitarians had received their assignment, the Utes had signed a treaty with the government that restricted them to a reservation made up some of the most mountainous, least habitable parts of Colorado. So the Unitarians sought ministers to serve as Indian agents, to be a shining moral example and to teach the Utes how to farm, convert them to Christianity, and otherwise assimilate them to white culture. 
and the people they found to do this job were not suited to the work. No one, as far as I know, goes into the ministry thinking, what I really want to do is go far away from everything I've known to negotiate conflicts, operate within a complicated bureaucracy, and teach people with no interest how to farm. And so the people that the Unitarians were able to send were, as far as I can tell, people who sort of were failing out of congregational ministry. They were the people for whom this was their only option. And they were weird. (laughs) Um, A historian describes one of them, the Reverend Jabez Nelson Trask, in this way. Trask walked about the agency in a dark blue swallowtail coat, skin-tight trousers, and to protect himself from the sun, an old-fashioned floppy beaver hat with a broad brim and a set of green eye goggles. So to the modern observer, this historian says, he might resemble Kermit the Frog. But to a 19th century Ute, he looks more like an evil spirit. And in the end, Trask proved to be a needless crank and tactless and incompetent. Historians assess that the incompetence of the ministers sent for this task probably benefited the Utes, at least in the short term. And it wasn't just that the people sent were strange and ineffective in their role, but the task before them was impossible. The White River Agency in northern Colorado, one of the agencies staffed by the Unitarian ministers, was at 6,500 feet elevation. You cannot farm there. The growing season was about 70 days. And the farmers and gardeners among us know that you cannot grow enough food to sustain yourself for a whole year in 70 days. Crops failed again and again. And even the youths who were willing to try agriculture quickly realized that their traditional hunting and gathering was better suited for this land than the agriculture demonstrated by the Indian agents. In 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes was elected president, and once he took office, he changed the policy towards the Native people. It would no longer be clergy sent to civilize them, but men with more practical skills who would teach them white ways. A man named Nathan Meeker was appointed as agent to the White River Agency. He was not a Unitarian, but he was close. He was a great admirer of many Unitarians and shared the utopian visions common among, among our religious ancestors at that time. And for the brief time he spent at White River, he kept up a close correspondence with the Unitarian Association, asking for supplies and clergy and a carpenter to be sent. And as so many of these stories go, it ended badly. Meeker believed, like so many, that the youths needed to farm. His failure of imagination and empathy led him to believe that the youths must assimilate. He withheld rations from those who didn't farm, which was in violation of the treaty. Meeker believed that if the youths didn't have horses anymore, then surely they would start farming. And so he plowed up the pasture lands making it harder and harder for the Utes to find land to graze their horses. And this prompted a conflict with the Ute leader, Johnson. 
It is unclear what happened. Johnson said that they exchanged harsh words. Meeker says he was physically assaulted. And Meeker then literally called in the cavalry. And when the cavalry unit entered the land promised to the youths, again, a violation of their treaty rights, the youths defended themselves and their territory. Many on both sides died in this battle. And during the fighting, a group of youths came to the agency where Meeker and his family were, which was several miles distant from this battle, and killed the men and abducted the women and children who were released after several weeks. This event, known as the Meeker Massacre, led to the Utes being expelled from Colorado. Even though a peace commission found that the Utes were not at fault for the battle, they were removed from Colorado, forced onto the Uinta Reservation in Utah, northeast of Salt Lake City. The site of the White River Agency is now a town called Meeker. And why do I tell this hard story to all of you today? In part because tomorrow is Columbus Day, which many are now trying to rename Indigenous Peoples Day. Whatever we call it, it is a day to grapple with the complicated and confusing history of our hemisphere, the pain and loss and triumph and tragedy. I don't tell this story so we can look back at history and judgments of others' missteps and pat ourselves on the back for not perpetuating injustice in that particular way. Of the two options under discussion, assimilation and annihilation, the more compassionate path was chosen, I think. But there was a failure of imagination, a failure of empathy that led to such limited options. There was a commitment to white cultural supremacy and manifest destiny that clouded everyone's vision, that made an entire country unable to consider anything beyond annihilation and assimilation. And I know that 150 years from now, people will look at the history of our time and clearly see the limits of our vision, our failures of imagination and empathy. And we probably can't even begin to imagine what those will be as we are so deeply attached to our assumptions and our limited visions. I tell this story because it is a Unitarian story, but it is also the story of everywhere in this hemisphere. The choir sang beautiful words of friendship written by Thomas Jefferson to the Potawatomi people and other tribes in 1802. And 19 years after that letter, full of lofty words about brotherhood and unity and coexistence, The land we are on right now was ceded to the U.S. government by the Potawatomi people. They received land west of the Mississippi River in return. And they were allowed to remain here until 1840 when they were removed. Tribal families assembled at what is now our Amtrak station and then were forced to march west, leaving the land they had known for generations. And there are stories like this about nearly every square inch of our country. It is important that we know these stories. Knowing is an important beginning, but it is not enough. We are called to work towards reconciliation and seek forgiveness. But it's not as simple as saying I'm sorry and putting down the big heavy backpack. We know that. 
In 2009, the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly was held in Salt Lake City, Utah, on land that was once Ute land. And at that gathering of thousands of Unitarian Universalists, the Reverend William Sinkford, who was the president of our association then, apologized for our historic action. He said, and so to the Ute people, the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations offers our heartfelt apology. We participated, however ineptly, in a process that stole your land and forced a foreign way of life on you. We ask your forgiveness and we promise to stand with you as you chart your way forward. And as he said this, Sinkford reminded those gathered that the work of reconciliation is not a one-stop process. It's not a task that ever gets crossed off the to-do list. It's something that we do over and over and over again. We are perpetually seeking reconciliation. We are perpetually helping one another set down our our burdens. And at that gathering where Sinkford apologized, Forrest Kutch responded, Kutch is the executive director of the Utah Bureau of Indian Affairs and a member of the Ute tribe. Speaking for himself alone, and he was very clear about that, saying it several times over, he accepted the apology. He then said he attended one of the schools founded by one of the Unitarian ministers sent to the Utes. After that, minister was kidnapped by a group of Mormons, which is a whole other story. (laughs) And he was grateful for that institution that helped him in a troubling, a troubled part of his life. And he reminded those gathered that the, that the tribes in his area and everywhere are still suffering from intergenerational trauma. And forgiveness is not going to solve that. Just as it's hard to know where to begin a story, it's hard to know where to end it. There's no easy ending today. The stories are hard and complicated. What is our complicity? What is our responsibility as Unitarian Universalists now that we know how our forebearers acted in our name and in the name of the faith that we still claim today? I don't know the answer to that, but I know that we need to know these stories and wrestle with them and not just them. What is our complicity and what is our responsibility as people who live on the land the Potawatomi were removed from? What is our complicity and what is our responsibility as people who live on a continent that Native people were largely removed from? Tribal land is about 3% of our country's land right now. And if we call tomorrow Indigenous People's Day... How does that symbolic gesture call us into greater action and awareness? Because renaming the day doesn't really do anything. I don't have the answer to all these questions. But I am inviting you all into the story and into the complexity because the work of reconciliation is not something a person can do alone. We're not going to find our way towards some new vision if we don't know these stories and we cannot grapple with histories and questions that they ask of us alone. The only way out is through and the only way through is together. 
we in so many ways are beneficiaries of all sorts of systems of oppression and it's really easy to not see them it's really easy to claim innocence it's really easy to say that is past and it's not my problem and we can't do that we need to know what is happening and what has happened and only then can we begin the work of envisioning something else Only then can we expand our empathy and our imagination to hold new visions. Visions of beloved community, visions of a nobler world, visions of a world of greater understanding, a world where all our hearts are bound together, a world of love. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.